Welcome to another in the series of another Vat of Wine podcasts. I'd better go and have a word with the guests. Why don't you have another vat of wine, dear? <laughs> Gosh, Niddy, what a lovely bouquet. Yes, it's a fine bunch of red rosés! <laughs> Tiptoe to the window, at the window is where I'll be. Yes, hello and welcome to another Vat of Wine, a podcast where we get to know the people who call the wine and alcohol industry their home, as well as those who just like to drink it. And we do it over a bottle of their chosen wine or tipple with me, Chris Buchanan. It's safe to say that any bottle of booze that's produced in this country or imported into the country comes across her desk. She's a keeper of the Kreich and a broadcaster with a weekly wine show on Touch HD. She also sits as gatekeeper at the entrance and exit to Norman Goodfellows in the Elova shop in Johannesburg. I'm talking today to Carrie Adams, who is a director of Norman Goodfellows Fine Wine and Spirit Merchants, and its true ambassador when it comes to wine. With the advent of supermarket chains opening their own liquor outlets, the neighbourhood store is under threat and Carrie believes Norman Goodfellows to be the equivalent of the old-fashioned grocer, where it's a personal experience rather than just walking in, buying a bottle of booze or a case of beer and walking out. It started as an offshoot of Solly Kramer's over 40 years ago by the original Solly's son and current Solly's father, Norman, and has become an institution and sets the test for its personable service, loyal customer base, and ability to keep its identity as the world of franchises and online sales closes in around it. We'll hear from Carrie why she thinks the French will always do it better than anyone else, why the South Africans are getting much better at it, and who's shaking it up in the world of winemaking. She tells us how the Australians got it wrong in promoting screw caps on premium wine and introduces us to a few of the challenges in liquor retail. The online offering has made inroads into the new Norman Goodfellows business model. It's taken the neighbourhood store international, offering deliveries to a relative in London or Toronto under the Norman Goodfellows brand. But despite the massive growth in the online business, it's really the personal service that gets Carrie up in the morning. I love talking to my customers, and I think that that's more than half the success of Norman Goodfellows is the interaction that we all have with the customers at the shops. Um, right from the top down, I mean, Solly's great in the shop as well. If you come into the store when Solly's there, not that he's in there very much anymore in the actual store, but it's always fun and it's banter and it's tasting and it's everybody remembers Mrs. Ponsonby Smithers and Mr. Lawrence gets kissed and Mrs. Shlongwani gets a hug. And you know what I mean? It's very hands-on and very personalized. And that's why I'm not particularly um, mad about the online business, but I cannot deny that it's added quite a lot to our monthly turnover. Is there a, a young generation of Mrs. Ponsonby coming into the shop? Is there, there a young generation do you know, of, interestingly of people enough, that are carrying on that tradition? Yes. I try to, I try to maintain the personalized thing rather, if you're having a party, Chris, and you go online and you order your party stuff online 
I have no relationship with you whatsoever. I then have to, it's, it's difficult with parties, which is a huge part of Norman Goodfellow's business. Because we send out glasses and ice and buckets and baths and this and that, and then we go back and fetch it the following week after you've had your party and we credit you back with whatever you didn't use and all that. So party is a very big part of Norman Goodfellow's business. And a lot of people try to order parties and functions online and it really, really, really doesn't work. Because I like to sit with you across my desk and say, who's coming to the party? Is it sit down? Is it cocktails? It, it all depends on... But that's the only way I order from a, for exactly. a party is to go and talk to somebody because they exactly. know. I'm having 100 people, 50 exactly. kids, you know, then they know what yeah, to do. Yeah, and you can choose product together and you, can, and you really get a feel for your customer. And so because we've done that so much over the years, I think... Mrs. Ponsonby Smithers' daughter grew up with Norman Goodfellows delivering everything for her birthday party, and she just comes and does the same for her child's birthday party. So yes, there is a generational thing where somebody has an account, their great-granny had an account at Norman Goodfellows, old Soddy Kramers, and the family still buys from Norman Goodfellows. So it's it's a wonderful business. It's, this, Norman Goodfellows is one of the most civilized things left in the country, I <laughs> promise you. It really, really is. It's a fabulous little business. And how would you compare yourself to somebody else who might call themselves a, a specialist wine merchant or a, um, a specialist liquor merchant you know, on, a it's such a funny on a different thing. basis? But I've never ever really even thought of anybody as being competition to Norman Goodfellows because it's such a unique little shop. Um, and it's not only just one little shop. There's lots more to Norman Goodfellows than actually meets the eye. But the business... Whilst having, that's where my, back to my point of technology, the business has, we've managed to grow the business whilst maintaining that sort of Dickensian feel about it. I mean, you can go downstairs into the basement at Ilovo and find almost anything. It's very Dickensian and it might not be on the computer system and it might not be here but it was, somebody will remember that we got a bottle of something in from so and so in 1922 or whatever so it's very Dickensian and I think it's it's um, what's the word, it's endearing to know that there's still business, I don't know if you remember Frank uh, Thorold's do you remember Frank Thorold's bookshop in town? Yes. Norman Goodfellows is like that bookshop, I can remember when I was at Varsity, you could always go to him and he would say, "Yes, I think I've got a that I've got a first edition, or I've got a second edition." He would edition go and dig, would go and dig, dig around. Do you remember? Would come, yeah. yeah. And that's sort of the kind of feel that that we like to keep at Norman Goodfellows. It's it's comfortable. And what about the other stores? Do you does that work in the other stores? And Not the really. Centers? I would imagine that the, the, the Not vibe really. is completely I different. I think Lovo is a very very special place. Um, the old curiosity shop. It is the old curiosity mm. shop. It's very Dickensian. So the new shops in the shopping centres are smart as well, which Ilovo has never been smart. I mean, it's, Ilovo is just Ilovo. It's sort of shabby chic to be kind. And um, the new stores are much smarter. They're very beautiful, but they don't have that same character that Ilovo has. Yeah, yeah that's, the, um, that's the original. Yeah. I mean, how did you get into this business? I mean... Okay, let's let, let's go further back. How was Christmas for you when you were when you were a child? What was Christmas like oh, Christmas when you were a, a, a young girl? What, what what was it like? Christmas was gorgeous. I still love Christmas to this day. I drive my family crazy. I, I start playing Christmas carols in about October, and 
by the time we get to December, my family are ready to disown me with all the, the wretched Christmas carols that I play. I love Christmas. And when I lived in England, it was my best time of year in England. It's the only time I... Oh, well, not the only time, but I miss England terribly at Christmas time because it is so Christmassy. It's the, it's the archetypal Christmas oh, that, that we are told just, about that we've yes. never experienced because we're in a different hemisphere. There's just Father Christmases <laughs> all over the place and people making music and reindeers and snow and beautiful Christmas windows. And it's just, I love Christmas in England. But Christmas as a child, I have a brother and a sister and the three of us were and still are inseparable. So... And we had, a mother, we had a grandmother, a maternal grandmother, who lived with us when we were little, who was English. And so she also loved Christmas, and she started making Christmas puddings and all those sort of things in about September or August, and dousing them in brandy and port and what <laughs> have you. Do you remember? With tickies in them. Yeah, she used to put... And then when we got frightfully much smarter than that, we used to put little half Krugerrands into the Christmas pudding. It was the only way I could get my family to actually eat Christmas pudding because they all hated it. But if I put a half Kruger Rand in, they would all have it in case okay. they got the Kruger Rand. <laughs> so Christmas was Christmas was huge fun when we were children and there was much excitement and we celebrated Christmas and we did lots and lots and lots of Christmas. So you were three of you, happy childhood. Very happy, happy childhood. childhood. I, When I was about 12... An enormous shock. We sat at the, the lunch table one Sunday and my mother said, well, Raymond, are you going to tell the children or should I? And bottom line was my parents got divorced when I was 12, which was quite weird at the time. There weren't many people who came from divorced homes. I think in those days, women just used to grin and bear it. But I had a very feisty mother and she was not about to put up with my father, who was the gentlest, kindest, still is alive, actually. My mum isn't, but my dad is. And he's just, he adopted, he denounced Catholicism and adopted Buddhism at quite a late stage in his life. So I had this fasty English mother and this relaxed and placid Buddhist father. It was a bit of a strange mixture. But happy childhood, really, really happy childhood. And um, it was a bit tricky when my folks got divorced, I suppose. But I went to part-time girls' high. And I had an incredibly strict headmistress by the name of Ruth Waterfield. And my mother obviously went and told Ruth Waterfield that she and my father were getting divorced. As you did, I suppose, in case the child started spinning <laughs> west, you know, and <laughs> taking drugs and have sex and rock and roll. <laughs> and she called me into her office. I think I was, I was, I was 12. She called me into her office and she said to me, well, Carrie... Your mother tells me that your parents are separated. So I said to her, yes, they are. She said, well, you're not to say a single word to a single soul. You pull yourself together and get on with it. <laughs> so that was about the pull amount of pull yourself Isn't together that, and get on with despite it. Despite many people said, that, well, I'm not a part. I'm, so, <laughs> I can't pull myself together. I'm not a part. So when I look at the kids nowadays and all the counselling and the thising and the thatting, and that was literally the counselling that I got. Now, that's one in three. Then it must have been one in ten. There were, I didn't yeah. tell anybody because I felt I honestly was the only girl in the school, I thought, whose parents were divorced. I subsequently found after that there was a girl called Lorna Pask who her parents were also divorced. But she also didn't say anything. And she never said a word. <laughs> I think there were three of us. And none of us admitted to it ever. Yeah. So it was just like that. But... It, I loved school, and Parktown was an amazing school. I, I would, 
highly recommend part-time girls out to anybody. It gave me one of the best educations. I would, I subsequently had a son of my own, and I sent him to a private school, which was absolutely amazing. But I do not believe that the education was any was superior to that that I got at, at part-time mm. girls' house. It was a fabulous school. It was school. a neighbourhood school. I think yeah. neighbourhood schools are so important too. It was gorgeous. Yeah. It was steeped in sort of traditions and histories and yeah. all that sort of stuff. It was lovely. And then you went to university. What did you read? I studied the birds and the bees. I did botany and yeah. zoology. And then I went to live in England after that. It was a ba- basically a BSc. And then I went to live in England after that for a few years. And I worked for a man um, who had an amazing wine collection. And up until that part of my life, I had really, I I think that I'd only really drunk sort of autumn harvest crackling. You know those days where you drank autumn harvest crackling, tussies, that sort of stuff. Not even very much of it because I didn't drink a huge amount when I was young sort of making up for it now in my old age. <laughs> but, um, so, my boss in England, he was a wonderful Englishman. He was actually an architect. But he um, he had a wine collection. And one by one way or another, I sort of ended up getting introduced to this wine collection when I was organising lunches and things for people that we were entertaining and what have you. And he said to me, you really do seem to have a bit of a palate for this. Um, do you like... The first cellar I ever went into, it was under the River Thames. i have never, ever seen a wine cellar in my life before. And he said to me, I must go in there and choose some bottles of wine for a specific lunch that we'd organised. And I walked in there and I just knew, you know, you know, you know you're out of your depth. I yeah. was young, I was 21. And I just knew that I was out of my depth and I knew that I shouldn't make a mistake... The first, it was almost holy in there. It was the first cellar ever. I remember the smell to this day. And it was dim. And it had barrel vaulted ceilings and it literally went under the River Thames. And the first bottle that I pulled out, uh, I don't know, it said Chateau Lafitte or Chateau Latour or something on it. And I just knew, at least I knew enough to know that I shouldn't bomb out on this one. And I went back to him and I said, listen, you're going to have to help me select this wine because I think I'm a bit out of my depth. Anyway, it was after that that we used to taste sort of every Wednesday or so whilst I was working for him. And eventually he encouraged me to study my wine exams, and I did. And I came back to South Africa and I went to work for Anglo-American Farms. They had just bought Fergelegen and of course they owned Bosch and Doll at the yes. time. And I sold Fergelegen and Bottendal wine. Lots of it. Okay. In so those days, like 3,000 cases a month. Yeah. Those were our targets. It was ridiculous. We had the most ridiculous targets to sell for England. But in those days, I mean, we're talking... Those, we were talking, that was in 1990... It was in about 1994. So... There was the, the wine landscape was was controlled. It was conservative. There was no Absolutely. innovation. It was just old and they names. were about yeah. I think they were about there were about sixty pages in the John Platter Guide. I think 
Now there's 900 pages that yeah. are on Plata Guide, I think. So, yeah, it was, it was a very uncontested space. Um, and I came home to South Africa just after the dawn of a new democracy, thinking that it was all going to be moonlight and roses. And I came home to a very, to a very um, verkrumpt and odorous wine industry. It's come a long way since then. When did you then go to Norman Goodfellas? I mean, so I worked for Anglo for four, three or four years, and then Solly offered me a job at Norman Goodfellas, and I think I joined Norman Goodfellas in 1997. A long time to yeah. be on the corner under the stairs. <laughs> yeah, but you love your job, clearly. I, I do. Mean, I love uh, my job. I know. love my shop. I love my customers. Go back to that wine yeah. landscape, pre ninety four. KWV, Stellenbosch Farmers Winery. Absolutely. Um, you know, you had your, Distel. your guys, Distel. Yeah. Um, suddenly, things just started opening up. But clearly, what we thought was like our rugby. Listen, we, we were better at rugby than we were at making wine. I can thing. tell you that much. We, we thought we were great at wine, but when, when it actually came to the crunch, we weren't that very... We weren't that good at all, were we? We weren't that good. Um... Especially having studied and done all my tastings and things in London, I came back to South Africa with a, with a, probably much more of a European palate than anything, and because there wasn't a lot of South African wine in England when I was living there, and um, I was absolutely horrified at how bad some of the wine was, and when I say bad, I mean it was just too much of everything. It was too much oak and too much fruit and too much alcohol and too much acid. And these are supposed to be reputable wines. Exactly. And, you know, there were were some. I mean, I still believe that Canoncorp is a world-class act. It was then and it still is now. And the Kricher family have done an amazing job of Canoncorp. And for me, it's the best wine in the country. Always has been and will continue to be until something else really knocks me off my feet. But from a pure consistency perspective, Canoncorp cannot. It's not rivaled by anybody, I don't think. And then, of course, there's Hannes with Mirlust. Um, and some of those Mirlusts from the 80s, they were delicious. Then they went off the boiler, but I think he got virus in the vineyards, but he had addressed it. They replanted vineyards and things at Mirlust. But... There are about four or five seriously iconic, if you can call wineries iconic. That came out of that era. That came out of that era. And for the rest, it was like, honestly, God, well, you can remember them. I don't need to tell you. Some of them were really just so oaky that it was it was impossible to taste <laughs> wine. You just couldn't taste any fruit. But we thought it was fantastic, you yeah. know, because we never had exposure to no. what, clearly what you had exposure no, to so when you were living I, in London. I came home and I was used to all these sort of restrained refined, silky, glossy, elegant wines um, to these things that were big and chunky and tarry and smoky and, oh, no. So we've come a long way. Okay, fast forward 22 years. Yes. In an industry that started off, I mean, there must have been 140 estates then. Now we're looking at over 700. Um, uh, Have we... Got better ourselves. We have. Have we? We have. We've become much, much, much better. I think 
I think that there's a whole new wave of brave young Turks who are exploring not new winemaking methods because the likes of the the sort of Swartland revolutionaries, they're making wine in ancient, age-old methods. It's, there's nothing new about it. But they're paying attention to it. And I think that not only are they paying attention to it, they are paying a lot more attention to hygiene. I think our cellars were deeply, desperately unhygienic at one stage. And everything was either bretty or... Um, you know, there was TCA in a, in a million of the cellars. It's a cardinal rule of any alcohol making, isn't it? Is to, hygiene, is to hygiene, keep hygiene. it clean. Yeah, yeah. So I think that there's a lot more attention being paid to hygiene in cellars. And I think that there's a lot more attention being paid. There's a lot more education. And, you know, education is the key to absolutely everything. So in those olden days, we had a gorgeous Jan Bullan Kutsia, or we had a Hempis de Toy, or we had a this, or we had a that. Yeah, you know, they might have gone to university and, and studied something, but they didn't study winemaking. They've never left their vineyard. They didn't really study winemaking. Mm. So anything that they did had been taught them by their parents, their grandparents, whatever the case might have been. And it was stuff that was handed down. And, you know, sometimes Granny's chocolate cake recipe is just not as good as, you know, my next-door neighbor's chiffon that she's making these days yeah granny's cake can be quite heavy and ghastly and difficult to swallow so i think that education has made a massive difference to the quality of wine making in south africa okay so we've got south africa new world wine you've got we've got california we've got argentina chile australia um, new zealand uh, where do we sit Cle- you know it's differently an because I, I know that the you know, then the Malbecs in South America, the Sauvignon Blancs down in, in the Antipodes. We've got the Reds in 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 California. Where where do we sit? Where's our place? Interesting question, because I keep on saying to everybody, South Africa should be right up there with the very, very best, because we, in effect, have a 400-year-old wine industry. It is. It's just about 400 years old. And so we shouldn't be classed as new world we're actually as old as france in many in many respects and you cannot tell me that 48 years of nationalist government and exclusion from the world of wine 48 years in 400 doesn't wash with me so it can't just be that we were excommunicated for 48 years while the nets were in power we should be right up there with the very, very best. Yeah. We are not a new world. We're an old world wine-producing country. I, If I look at places like Napa, when I was studying in England, when I was doing my stuff, I didn't like any of it at all. It was also huge and big and buxom and tits and bums and you name it. That's Everything that you drank from Napa was huge. And I thought it was a bit grotesque and a bit overt. And I was a bit rude about it. Well, I think everybody else, people who counted, not just like me, little nobody sitting in London studying my books, people who counted kept saying, this Napa wine, you know, all those Chardonnays, remember how big and buttery and oaky they were? And And Napa sat up and took note. And I don't know if you've 
recently tasted anything out of Napa, but there is, they are making such superb wine, you cannot even start to imagine. They took note of the criticism, of the constructive criticism, and they've readjusted whatever they had to readjust, and they are producing super, super, super smart wine. Um, Australia, for me, I've never been a massive Australian fan. Um, I think because they tried to invent or tried to drive the whole screw cap market, and I'm being a Luddite, I don't like screw cap. If you want screw cap, buy a bottle of Coke. I just don't think it's the right closure for wine. Particularly um, on a certain level. I mean, yeah. yeah. Oh, listen, if you're just going to the beach or you're going to a picnic or whatever and you buy it today and you're going to drink it tomorrow, absolutely fine. But I do not believe it. I just couldn't stand having the screw cap shoved down my throat at every single turn, every book, every seminar, every this, every that, every tasting, about how they were going to start bottling Penfold's Grange under screw cap. And they'd run these tests for 10 years and screw cap had maintained the wine perfectly and it was much better than Corkware. Well, it, it's not, actually. And 20 years later, everybody's gone somewhat quieter on the screw cap issue because it's not better than cork. And it's also, I mean, cork is a natural product. Mm. It should, wine is a natural product. Glass is a natural product. It should all just be natural. You don't have to put a screw cap on a bottle of wine. Yeah. Um, the, in terms of the, the, the wine cultivars, where, where are we? What is something, do we have anything unique to South Africa? I mean, I know Pinotage, yeah. but, but so, um, like the Malbecs, as I said, and the Sauvignon Blancs, and where, where would, where, where should we be putting our effort in terms of individualising our wine. I've always said that I believe South Africa makes much better white wine than red. I think that we're making some absolutely beautiful Chardonnay. And I know for a fact that we are producing some super smart white blends. And I do think that white wine is our strength. South Africans would have you believe, and they still will to this day, that Shiraz is the cultivar that's going to make us famous. I don't believe that for a minute. I think the Chardonnay is the cultivar that we should be focusing on. And Shannon? Shannon is just such an amazing grape. You know, I love Shannon. It's such an honest grape. It's incredibly honest. If you have a vine, a Chardonnay vine and a Shannon vine, in any one vintage, the Chardonnay vine will give you one bottle of wine and the Shannon vine will give you 100 bottles of wine. It's so generous in every single respect. And I think that with, again, with this new wave of young winemaker, they're exploring and experimenting with Shannon and making it far more serious than it ever was before. It used to be Stim, if you remember, or Stein. And now there's some serious Shannons. I mean, you look at Hope Marguerite from Beaumont. Absolutely beautiful Shannon. Beautifully made Shannon Blanc. And you look at some of the wines from the Loire, they are serious wines, and I think that South Africa is starting to take Shannon a lot more seriously. Why is France still the benchmark? What keeps France in that benchmark position that, um, despite the fact that there are these other new worlds around it, and what keeps France in that benchmark position? Do you know what I think? Because there's nothing particularly the, special about yeah. their terroir. They have a Mediterranean climate, which is exactly what we have. I mean, I've been in Bordeaux in years, where the, in harvest time, where the temperatures are hitting 40 degrees and 44 degrees. So it's not as if it's particularly much colder than here. So there's a lot of similarities between the topography, the, you know, the climate and 
the terroir, so to speak. I mean, why people love that word terroir, but it's everything. It's all encompassing. It's the geography and the soil type and the climate and everything. But I think the thing that really, really does set France apart from everybody else in the world is the unbelievable attention to detail. Do you know, I went and spent a vintage in France um, picking and, and pressing and pushing and doing whatever in Bordeaux one year. And I was given a little haversack that I was put on my back, a pair of nail scissors and a sun hat, which I had to have, and one row of vineyard. And I spent three weeks walking up and down that row, pruning one leaf at a time. I had a pair of nail scissors, one leaf at a time, in order. So you sat and spoke to the to the viticulturalist in the morning, and they'd done the trajectory of the sun and the, how fast it was moving across the sky and the degrees and the this and that, and you had to make sure that the grape bunch was exposed like that or like that or like that. And so we literally, each of us, pruned one leaf at a time in order to get those bunches to ripen evenly or just as they wanted them. So many winemakers have spent harvests in France, why don't they do the same? Because we don't have we don't have a workforce that is educated enough to do it. And that sounds very, very condescending. But can you imagine for somebody who can't afford to pay to feed their family at night? having to worry about which leaf we're cutting off to expose the grapes. It's just a completely different, it's a different kind of a world that we live in here. And in France, there are families that are steeped in winemaking for hundreds of years. And they pass all of that stuff down all the time. It's People are passion, seriously passionate about doing it. They don't just say they're passionate. They are seriously, we're not allowed to say it on radio, but it's like, it's an Afrikaans word. <laughs> and they are. They're just completely crazy about their craft mm. and their art. And they want to make it the best. Listen, there's also some ghastly wine. the internet, it's not radio, so you can say what you like. Well, the word was befok. Yeah. Let's talk about this one. Bruce Jack. Oh, do we love Bruce Jack or do we love Bruce Jack? I love him. So where is Bruce Jack from? Give us a bit of an idea. Of, you know, I was, I, was, I was going to ask you, that there's so many people entering this industry. You know, you've got the checkbook winemakers who make mm. their money, the trust fund kids, and here's a check, make me a winery, yes. make me a wine. And then the people who um, who come in, who put a barrel That's together and get a five-star platter rating because they just do it with passion. Yeah. Bruce Jack. So Brucey Jack, I met Bruce Jack in about 1997 or eight, I think. And I was in Cape Town and I went to the waterfront. When was the Cape Town waterfront built? It had just been built. Yeah, 97. 90-something. 98 was yeah, when was the right hotel was built. So I went to this waterfront to go and have a look. And there was like a funny little railway siding with a, with a little warehouse thing on it. And there was a sign up saying... What was the sign? What was the one called? Now I'm... I'm losing it. I'll think of it in a minute. Saying something wines. Anyway, I saw the word wine and I thought, that's interesting. Let me go and have a look and see. And there were a couple of plastic tanks outside. 
filled with wine and a bit of wine making equipment and what have you. And I went and knocked on the door of this thing and there was Bruce Jack. Garagiste almost. Like the first yeah. garagiste <laughs> ever. And Bruce Jack's father was one of the, I think he was an architect, um, responsible for the building of the Cape Town waterfront. And um, Brucey had now rented this little warehouse on this railway siding as you entered the waterfront. And he was making wine. And he'd made a Chardonnay called Two Roads. I have to think of the name of his wine company. How silly. In those days, you, you still had to have your boots searched when you went into the waterfront. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he'd made this Two Roads. And long story short, Bruce Jack had a piano inside this, this warehouse. And he had barrels of wine, and he was a young boy. He was young, young. And suffice to say that I, Bruce and I got drunk together that day. I'd never met him in my life before. We got terribly drunk. We spoke wine. We played the piano. We sang. We smoked. We drank. We had a wine. And Bruce and I became really, really good friends all those years ago. Brucey, whilst came from a, a really sort of, I think we can say privileged family. His father chucked him in the deep end and he said, you want to make wine, go and do it. Bruce had an English degree, actually. He's, he studied English at university. And all his labels are quite, you'll see, they're quite literary and he's got poetry. And, and in fact, that first label that, that he had was, was um, Two Roads Diversion of Wood. I took the One Less Travel. Oh, and that's yes, made all travels, yeah. Robert Frost or somebody wrote yeah. it. I can't remember. Um, so he then went on to make wines for Flagstone. I think it was Flagstone Winery. And he, he then started making wine huge, huge. His company got bought out by Constellation Wines. He sold his company for a lot of money and he stayed on as the winemaker he made Kumala, which I think is the biggest export brand in the country, and he made it for Constellation. And that's what Bruce had been doing. Up until a few years ago where he decided that he wanted to go and do his own thing again, and he'd done quite well out of Constellation and selling his brand and what have you to them. And he went and bought a farm which is called The Drift, which is to Helen Gone, beyond, back of beyond, beyond Hermanus, I think even, towards Elam. And um, he's making a few a few wines. Um, he makes an unbelievable Pinot Noir called There Are Still Mysteries. And then the other day he came to see me at the shop and he said to me, Carrie, taste these. I've just decided to have some fun because he can't help himself. These wines are under 60 rand a bottle on the shelf at Norman. And it's a Shannon. This is a Shannon. He makes a Pinotage Malbec blend and he makes a Shiraz. And he makes a Sauvignon Blanc. And they are all, they punch way above their weight. Um, and you pay 60 and just under for them. It's fabulous wine. Yeah. I think it's great wine. Everybody should try some. Could I taste the coffee? Of course you can. Is it cold enough still for you? We've been talking so much. And as I say, you can see on his labels, there's always... Shannon is a reluctant movie star, he says on the back, yeah? A reluctant movie star. Hmm. And all kinds of other things. Shannon's... 
love long lunches. My job is to make little bottles of joy. The seasons remind us to live and drink wine. And Text. how long has the, the, the Bruce Jack label been alive? Is, it, is that a... Well, uh, this Bruce Jack label is brand new. But the drift, if you have a look um, in Platter, for example, the drift has been alive for a couple of years. And he made, he made wines for, you know, the Berio wines? Do you remember the Berio? Um... They made a beautiful Sauvignon Blanc Semillon blend called The Weather Girl. Um, and he made a thing called The Music Room. And, oh gosh, he's made us many, many, many. He made Flagstone Wines was big. Big enough for Constellation to want to buy them. That's a lovely wine. Slish, hey, just for fun. Yeah. It's got no, I mean, it's just a... It's, it's, got, a no, very, it's got no sort of enzymes and, and, and shitty bits added. But why is it... The Sauvignon Blanc thing, which is, seems to be coming to a, a bit of an end, why has Shannon not made the same sort of impact you know, to I think, the consumer that Sauvignon Blanc has? I think it's starting to... I think Sauvignon Blanc... The funny thing is, is that in my experience as a retailer, people like to, they talk dry, but they actually enjoy sweet. They talk dry and drink sweet. So if you have a wine that's fruitier and apparently sweeter, it sells better. And you know, there were a lot of those Sauvignon Blancs that, that appeared dry, but if you looked at their RS, it was quite high. Um, and people thought that they, and, and they ticked the boxes because they were crisp, they were fresh, they appeared dry, although quite, quite a lot of them were quite fruity, those Sauvignon Blancs, depending upon which one you, you bought. And I always said, you know, if, she, if Sauvignon Blanc went to the matric dance, I don't think she'd be asked to dance. <laughs> She's not particularly pretty. She's a bit ordinary and one-dimensional and boring, you know. But Chenin Blanc, on the other hand, is like a big bowl of fruit salad. But it's still got that dryness. It's, it's not, gorgeous. To say it's, fruit salad, people think, oh, it's going to be, it's, it's going to be sweet. It's but not sweet. In fact, it's actually it's got you a lovely what? dryness to it, a lovely pH to it. it. Excuse my dogs. And that um, that fruit just sits around well, you know, the tongue it. and lingers, and it's lovely. Wine is supposed fruit. to t- it's supposed to taste and smell like wine, and Shannon Blanc, fortunately, just tastes and smells largely like very, very ripe, beautiful, sun-kissed grapes. But in addition to that, if you smell inside your Shannon glass, you normally can smell mangoes and lychees and so pineapples and pawpaws. And exactly. Yeah. So it's, that's why I say it's like a fruit salad on the nose. But I love Shannon Blanc. It's, and it's, it's a lot less acidic than Sauvignon Blanc. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I think particularly people who... I've been drinking wine for a long time. The, the acidic, mm. the, the, the lower pHs just start. The acidity just really gets to you after a while. You can't do it. Yeah. And yeah. Shannon has got a, a, a lovely balance. Yeah. It's exactly. Who's the rock stars? Who's the guys to look out for? Wine. It's I tell you who my rock stars are. The next five, ten years, who are the guys to look out for? My rock star, my rock stars are Duncan Savage. I absolutely love Duncan Savage's wines. He made wine for Cape Point for many, many years. Now he's on his own. And he makes absolutely beautiful wine. So I love him. 
I love Carl van der Merwe, who works for Wendy Applebaum at De Morgan's On. Mm. He is a super smart little winemaker. He really does make beautiful wine. Bruce Jack makes beautiful wine. The Newton Johnsons. Those Newton Johnson boys, I think, are making the best Pinot wine in the country. And they are just... They haven't got a huge long track record. I think the farm, they've had the farm for about 16 years or so. But they're making such beautiful wine. So the Newton, Bevan Newton Johnson is a boy to watch. Um, who else do we like? Oh, Alan, uh, Adam Mason from Mulderbosch. He's a really smart little winemaker as well. Very good. Um, who else do we want to? And boutique wines, little guys have started up a, a smaller Oh, there's so many of element. them. I mean, what are you looking at in terms of those in terms of those wineries or estates that are... Yeah, a lot of those little guys in the... I tell you who we do cannot discount is Andrea and Chris Molyneux from from Molyneux Estates, Molyneux and Liu. Those wines are... She is a superb winemaker. Um, the Swartland boys... Listen, you get an Adi Badenhorst who's not young. He's not old, but he's not sort of a brave young Turk. And he and Urban sort of drove that whole revolution in the Swartland. And there's about oh, there's about 20 winemakers. David, David Sardi and his wife Nadia. Fabulous, fabulous ones. No relation to Urban Sardi. But David and Nadia Sardi definitely watch. Absolutely beautiful wine. And do you say Swartland? I mean, is that I mean, is it is it something genuinely to look at, or you know, or just I, exceptional people people making something no, exceptional think, out of a mediocre situation? I think what's happening in the Swartland, and and if you if you really dissect that whole Swartland thing, the Swartland Cooperative used to produce hundreds of thousands of cases of wine every year, and nobody took any notice of it. I mean, Swartland Co-op wine. You used to buy in, in five-litre boxes when I was at, at Varsity. You could buy Swartland Co-op wine. It was delicious. And nobody really took too much notice of it because there's lots of um, growers who don't make wine. So they all used to just grow and sell to the co-op. So there was no big hype around the Swartland. But the vineyards have been there for a very long time. And most of them are old bush vines. And they're not hugely prolific, but they're producing grapes with beautiful, beautiful fruit intensity. So I think that there is a lot to be said for the fruit that's coming out of the Swartland. Um, there's a lot of rubbish that comes out of there as well, but there are some very smart, there's some beautiful vineyards and there's some very smart winemakers. The upper side of wine, the... the more expensive? The more expensive, the... The more discerning, we mentioned Kanonkop, the deterrents of the world, mm. the, the people who are really trying to create something special. Be, yes. Uh, there are five or six of them that are really looking at a, a superior wine, well packaged, you know, the, and also the pinnacle wines of some of the bigger estates that also put more effort in. Mm. Um, Neil Bester, I think, is one yes. who's doing yes, some yes. good stuff. And. Are, are there anything to talk about? Are, are there? Are, yes. Are, is there something happening there? No, look, I think I think we're very fortunate in that we've got about, I suppose, off the top of my head, we've probably got about ten, what I call checkbook wine makers, wine farmers, 
who are making a big fat difference to South Africa's winescape internationally. And they have the money to enter the competitions, they have the money to put into the planting of the vineyards and the tending of the vineyards and the winemaking process. That's attention to detail. That they have the money to put that attention to detail in without having to panic too terribly about getting a big return on their investment. Because with the best will in the world, if you and I bought a farm, our grandchildren would be lucky to make money out of it. Yeah, that's how you make a small farm, yeah. isn't it? Oh! Outside, my dogs are naughty. Sorry. Oh, they will. Dogs bark. Dogs bark. Well, People talk. Thinks, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he probably thinks I'm naughty. Um, so yes, I think that the likes of Delacroix making absolutely beautiful wine. De Morgan's on again. Um, um, the Lormeron wines, the Antony Antony Rupert wines are coming along in leaps and bounds. They're beautiful. Um, but again, there's loads of money being poured into research and development on all of these wines that I'm talking about. Takara, same thing. GC Ferreira is spending a huge amount of money. The Ukrainian guy who bought Coin Rock, can't think of his name off the top of my head mm. now, but put so much money into research and development and into replanting and relaunching that brand. It's It's an expensive business. So they're about, you know... There are, there's a handful of these checkbook wine farmers who I think are really, really raising the bar. Look at Mike Radcliffe with Villafonte. I mean, we can't discount Villafonte. It's absolutely beautiful. But the money and the time and attention that's gone into Villafonte is huge. Absolutely huge. So, and also, it's a lot, it looks like it's, you know, the, a few of these guys are, are saying this is, this is not about today. No. This is about, this is about the future. This is about. Being able to order a bottle of 2015 wine mm. in 2035. 100%. No. So I think that we are very fortunate that we've still got some. And listen, we can't discount what Distel does for the wine industry just because it's sort of a prior state-owned sort of wine machine. Um, they have done a lot for the South African wine industry as well, and they continue to run the wine bank, the Berkelder, mm. which is, it's got some fabulous wines in it, you know. They're selling off a lot of those farms now, but I mean, you look at Plaisir de Moule, is a beautiful wine farm that produces gorgeous Chardonnay and some very decent Cabernet as yeah. well. So, yeah, I think that we're fortunate to have enough money still to put into the wine industry, because there are a lot of people who are battling. Our industry is really, really battling at I mean, the moment. That, that's got to be one of the biggest challenges within the wine industry is to actually make it work financially. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are really a lot of reasons for that. We're not going to go into that now. But, you know, price, pricing and um, competition and exposure. Huge. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a very challenging industry. And, yeah. You know, with so many compared to 25 years ago, so many people producing wine, producing fairly good wine. There's got to there's got to be a lot of attrition on yeah. the way. It's, 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 you know, yeah, no, it's is it sustainable? No, it's not really sustainable unless, as I say, you've got great granny and grandpa's trust fund that keeps you alive. Whilst what you, about this, the, the drinking public of South Africa? I mean, you're in the retail you business. Know the drinking it's a beer, public. brandy, 
We are a Cider, beer cooler. and brandy drinking nation. We're you know, not how, a wine drinking how nation. How do we get people to start drinking wine if we can? You know, they is say it, is, that everybody says that wine is starting to become a bigger thing in in you know in the black townships and what have you, or so in the black communities. Um, it's still not big enough because if you consider, I don't know what the statistics are now, but I think there's like 3 million white people in the country. And if we've got a population of 57 million, that means we've got 53 million or 54 million black people in the country. And if black people were drinking wine, the way we're led to believe they're drinking wine, we wouldn't have any wine left because they would be purchasing whatever we're making, mm. which they're not. But I think it's also a social thing in as much as wine is quite expensive, and you don't dilute wine with anything. So whilst you might pay 100 rand or 120 rand for a bottle of vodka, you're going to get 28 drinks out of your bottle of vodka. Yep. You're going to pay 128 rand for a bottle of wine, and you're going to get five glasses and you're not allowed to dilute it with anything. Not in my company, anyway. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so I think that it's an economically unviable thing to introduce into poorer communities. It's interesting because you currently broadcast on Touch HD. Yes. And that, let's face it, that medium... That, That's a fantastic that listenership. Audience, that audience is fundamentally... Uh, um, they black are middle class. They are black middle class, and and the black middle class are drinking a lot more wine. But given the option, they they sort of still tend to sway towards spirits. I just see. I mean, whiskey is huge. Whiskey is absolutely Cognac. huge. Cognac is big, and funnily enough, champagne is really really um, popular amongst the black middle classes of South Africa. I worked at the Champagne Festival at the Ananda Country Club, and I was absolutely delighted to see how many black guys and girls were there and how much money they were spending on champagne. They really, really are good champagne customers. And is that a, is that a potential conversion into, into wine? Or it does could that, be. Does that sit in its own I realm? I think it might be in its own category. You know, black and white at this stage of the game, it's not fair to just say black, but black and white middle and higher income earners all around the world are into overt consumerism at the moment. You and I might find it quite vulgar because the way we were brought up, you weren't, even if you had millions, you'd never show it and you nobody would ever know. Oh, no, now, <laughs> the, there's the, such overt consumerism and everything is so showy and blingy and glitzy and glammy that that I think it's good for for the bigger brands. I don't think it's good for the little guys who are starving. I think that that the millennials and and above are into buying almost 100% with a view to impress. That guy who's the, he's the chef, the cab of Don Perignon, Christophe. Yes, oh, what is, he's what, retired what is, now. I forget his name. Yeah, I interviewed him last year on but radio. We, we had a I had a chat to him and I said, how do you feel about the fact that the rich kids of Instagram are now just... Mm. Throwing Dom Perignon Pouring Dom P all over. Yeah. And he said, at least it's Dom Perignon. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that... No, for that, us it's a bit yeah. vulgar, but... And and I don't really see the need to 
well, it doesn't impress me. You know, what people drink doesn't impress me. So, so I'm a bit of a goner when it comes to that. But the reality is, is that internationally, overt consumerism and showing off is the business of the day. Has the media had anything? I mean, we're involved in the media. Yeah. How's the media... Um, I think they drive it, don't you? Driven it. I mean, there were days when we would have long lunches with winemakers. Yes. And get to know each other and mm. talk. And there'd be four or five of us in the afternoon. It might seem a little bit hedonistic, but we drank all the wine that the winemaker gave, <laughs> gave us because he made the wine. These days, it's a it's a very instagram Thank tweet, you. Tweet, yeah. Have a yeah, sip, yeah. tweet. Boom, yes. back to the office because yeah. I've done my tweet for the day. Yeah. And there's, is, is, has, has the media coverage of wine lost its depth? I think it's lost its warmth. Never mind its depth. I think it's lost its warmth. There's, there's very little that can match sitting around a lunch table or a dinner table with the guy who created the wine and delving into it and dissecting it and enjoying it and telling you know wine is about stories and company and fun and sharing it's not a quick flash on instagram i don't think um but as i say we move with the times but i mean that's that's the essence of it isn't it i Mm. mean um it's easy to sum something up in a sentence yeah but do you get the impact i mean mean, you you think you and i have been at many a boozy lunch where we you called someone, did you say that the, the nose was like chicken shit? <laughs> no, never me. <laughs> Something like never that. Never me. <laughs> I, I was, we were sitting in the naughty corner. <laughs> no, you and I always got in the naughty um, corner. But, um, you know, for me, being in the media, for, with, in wine or in, in food and wine and in lifestyle, it's... It's the time you spend with the person. Absolutely. Or, you know, I always arrive early because then I get to spend more time with but the But life other isn't about time anymore, you see. Life is about how little time can you get to spend with everybody so that you can move but on to go and do something else. Why it takes so long to make? How I know. Do you, how do you shorten, how do you compress the time? You take to drink it. To en- Or well, to enjoy well, it. Well, to absorb it. Mm. Something that's taking so long to And you know, the other thing is, is that so much comes out of a bottle of wine. So much more than just 750 mils of liquid. There's so much more that comes out of a bottle of wine. Wine, wine honestly can cement friendships, love affairs, business deals, everything. So much comes out of a bottle of wine. And the closer you get to the bottom of it, the nicer everything becomes and the more lovable everybody becomes and the more affectionate the whole world becomes. And I just think that it's so sad that it's all currently being reduced to a selfie on Twitter or Instagram with a quick splash that says, you know, my me and my dompy or whatever. There's, It's good advertising, I suppose, for the brands, but... It somehow, it just takes the warmth out of the bottle of wine for me. Um, It's been very warm to be here with you, Carrie. Thanks so much. (laughs) Carrie Adams, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm Chris Buchanan. Join me again on a journey into another vat of wine.